we went up to Porto for a little bit, went, and then that's where we saw the Manuel de Oliveira Museum, which was insane. It was like a wing of the Contemporary Art Museum, and they had like they had his full archives there. You could look at his DVDs, like his personal DVDs. They had. His, oh my God, what did he have? Dude? I, nothing super memorable. Zoolander, yeah. you know, like <laughs> come on. The D, it was they. But what was the best? They had like his MacBook. And he's like that kind of shit, you know, yeah. just all the shit from his house. They had all his shooting binders for all of his films. They had, I mean, just the archives were insane. It was blowing my mind. All those slates. They had his cane hat and glasses, you know, every award he's ever won. Um, couple and, of Hugos. <laughs> couple, couple of Hugos. Yeah. Yeah. It was funny seeing all these beautiful awards and then seeing the AFI one that looked so fucking oh. tacky. <laughs> Yeah. This is the second time I've seen a, a Hugo in the wild because I also saw it at the Truffaut exhibition in Paris That's right. in 2014. Wild Hugos. Wild Hugos. Yeah. And even if they're, when they're put in glass, they still look like shit. You know, <laughs> they had they That's had, uh, the Hugo promise. Yeah. <laughs> Some of the shit of his they had, though, they had they had a lot of his race car trophies including um, a full oh, wow. like steering wheel that had his name embossed on it. That was That's really cool. cool. They had like all his like sports cards from the 20s. They had this golden statue of an Adonis basically and it said like Manuel de Oliveira modeled for this statue. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> I was like, Holy shit. I was like this. Wow, what a playboy, dude. Yeah, he was hot. If a you look at the yeah. the photos man. of him as an athlete, holy shit. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Gauntlet. My name is Ryan Saunders. I'm one of the hosts of this show. And with me today, as always, are... Eric Marsh. And... Andrew Stasulis. Our show is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of us is tasked with picking a theme for the week, and the other two then have to program a double feature in reaction to that theme, whether they decide to adhere to it or buck up against through a series of agitation. Who knows? We do it all. And so this week I was up. I had to pick the topic, and it was largely in reaction to a film. I saw recently that I rather enjoyed, and also a book I read that I enjoyed quite a bit, and the, the film was How to Blow Up a Pipeline. I had a lot of fun, found it very exhilarating, and I think it was able to skirt a lot of its didacticism by just having it be like an engaging, formal, cool thing, right? And I think that's a tough thing when it comes to films that center around social concerns, political concerns, and generally activism. And... That was sort of the genesis of this. I had also read Richard Powers' The Overstory, which involved climate activists in the late 90s who got labeled as terrorists because of bombings they did by the U.S. government. So then I thought, like, let's look at that. Let's take a look at some activists or agitators that were deemed dangerous by the state. 
And I kind of left it loose like that. You know, I had suggested, oh, you know, hey, if they're considered terrorists by the government that they're uh, opposing, all the better. That's fun. Uh, But in general, I just kept it open for a series of agitations from agitators. And that is absolutely what we received this week. We have uh, two very distinct groups of comrades, I would say. Um, no pun intended there with the <laughs> title of one of these films, I guess. Uh, but I had a great time. Uh, you, you both more than answered the prompt. You did not agitate. And I think you took it in two very interesting directions. So I'm excited to delve into that a little bit deeper. Let's start with the earlier film, which I believe is Marsh's film. So tell us a little bit about what you picked. Yeah, sure. Um, wow. Where to begin? Um, I'd heard of this film, you know, uh, for, for a while in this filmmaker, uh, but I, I didn't really have any experience with him. So I thought this would be a great opportunity uh, for us to discover the films of or film of uh, Bill Douglas, the Scottish filmmaker uh, who's most famous for having made a trilogy in the 1970s about his life growing up in uh destitution in a Scottish mining town. Um, But after that, he tried to, and did, uh, make an epic. And that film is Comrades from 1986, written and directed by Bill Douglas. And it is, uh, wow, again, uh, it's an epic, uh, described often by people as a, a, a poor man's epic. Uh, And it tells primarily the tale of the Torpuddle Martyrs, who were a group of agricultural workers in the early 1830s in Dorset, England, who uh, sort of organized a trade union and very famously got sent to Australia for their troubles. And that's you know, primarily what we're focusing on, but there's an added element to uh, the film as well, which is Bill Douglas's personal fascination with pre-cinema and optics and those kinds of tools and machines that appeared in the 1800s. And so he's really like simultaneously telling, uh, you know, a story about this this transformative moment in labor and agriculture and capitalism, uh, but also this transformative moment in optics where like things start to move. Uh, And throughout the film, there's a magic lanternist played by Alex North, who actually plays 14 different characters in the film that all demonstrate a different kind of uh, visual phenomena unique to uh, the period, right? And we'll certainly talk about all that. Um, I hadn't seen any any Douglas films uh, before this week, and now I've seen them all. (laughs) There's only four, uh, sadly. Um, He's a very sort of singular and and unique filmmaker, and I watched the trilogy, which is a very bleak and searing sort of, uh, you know, it's it's almost neorealist, but it's way too, like, poetic, and, and just, he has a very unique approach, kind of like materialist, 
poetry, right? He's very focused on, like, concrete things, but then he'll never actually, like, tell a straight story. It's always very elliptical. It's always very, uh, you know, focused on certain objects or certain moments or certain emotions. Um, and I've, I've fallen in love with, with this work. And, I, yeah, I, lo I loved Comrades. It was a, a, total, a total blast. I don't know if you want to describe it as a blast. But... Um, <laughs> Yeah, uh, you know, certainly, certainly a lot to to say here. Uh, it's this really big cast as well, kind of hard to keep track of, I think, at certain times because we not only spend, you know, a good chunk of this three-hour film with these workers, but their daily lives, their wives, their children, um, and he cast mostly unknown people to play, you know, these peasants, and, and then he cast a famous. Uh, British theater actors to play all the bourgeois scum throughout the movie, right? So we get like James Fox and Vanessa Redgrave and some other people uh, sprinkled throughout this, yeah, three hour long film. Uh, it was, you know, here, it's another one for the troubled production uh, history books, as we've often talked about on this podcast. This film, very troubled, took eight years from conception to theaters. Uh, Ishmael Merchant was the original producer who quit when Bill Douglas refused to film a ship at sea, uh, instead opting for a panoramic uh, moving uh, diorama or whatever. Uh, instead of actually filming a ship at sea, they they had a falling out. <laughs> they had a falling out. Uh, they you know they had money trouble, production delays, production problems. It was filmed both in Australia and. Uh, England, uh, and yeah, it's a it's a fascinating work, and I can't wait to uh, talk about it with you. Thank you. That's comrades. Yeah, I mean, I would I would call it a blast. <laughs> you don't need to <laughs> backtrack on that. This is one of those you know capital M masterpieces. Five bags in my book. I was pretty blown away, and. I don't mean to be dismissive, but conversely, I had a, a more complicated relationship with the film you picked, Andy, and I think it's even it's incredibly interesting because of that, and it's one of the reasons I'm excited to talk about it as a group. But so, tell me a little bit about the film you selected. Well, I'll be totally upfront that I I actually for a minute really considered agitating you and agitating <laughs> as you do <laughs> the the topic yeah and you know maybe it was because of the the very chill vacation dispatch you sent and <laughs> and i i sort of thought like you know maybe i could be the one to to rip you out of the good vibes of your your jaunt to portugal and uh you know i told marsh that i was thinking about picking Steven Seagal's On Deadly Ground, the movie he directed, <laughs> uh, his his environmentalist film. Uh, but, you know, I, I didn't want to do that. I, I, I was still, you know, thinking of our of our time spent with uh, with Brannigan. Yeah. So, you know, didn't didn't want to. Would have been another redundancy. A specter <laughs> yeah. is haunting the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Didn't want to didn't want to ruin the vibe again. So. <clears throat> so then I took a step back and. You know, Marsh had told me that he was thinking of comrades. So then I guess I sort of was thinking along the lines of like, okay, let's think about, you know, political uh, agitators, left wing agitators. And I discovered uh, that Paul Schrader had directed a biopic 
that I had never seen oh, wow. a biopic of Patty Hearst from 1988. And I just thought, hey, I haven't seen it. You know, Schrader's got uh, the Master Gardener out right now. He's in. He's he's in the 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 cinephiles' eyes once again with his latest film. So great time to to bring him back. And we have sort of just visited Schrader recently uh, in just his screenplay form with Scorsese's Bringing Out the Dead. So I hadn't seen this one. Didn't really know much about it at all. I watched a very shitty like VHS four by three trailer. That looked somewhat interesting, uh, and I said, yeah, let's just go. How bad could it be? Uh, and not bad, I would say, at all. It's a very interesting film. For people who don't know, uh, you know, the, the film covers the, 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 the story, the big part of Patty Hearst's life, her kidnapping by the Symbionese Liberation Army in 1974. Patty Hearst was, of course, the heiress to the Hearst fortune. And then while, you know, being a a sort of uh, a, a kidnapped victim of the Symbionese Liberation Army, Hearst was subsequently, depending on who you talk to, brainwashed or uh, a willing participant in their attempt at overthrowing the fascist government of the United States of America. Very famously, she was seen in a uh, in a bank robbery sort of surveillance footage or the, the cameras of that when she went along with them on a on a mission to to liberate funds to keep the Revolution Army going uh, and yeah it follows the the almost two years I think that she was with the the SLA and then her subsequent arrest and trial uh, it is uh, a film that stars Natasha Richardson as Patty Hearst, but also features quite a few other uh, familiar faces, including Ving Rhames, an early role for, for Ving Rhames as Field Marshal General Sinkyu, he pronounced it, right? Sinkyu, even though it's, uh, you know, a name that was taken from uh, Sinke, the the famous uh, uh, man who led the uprising on the Amistad. So, yeah, it uh, it follows the time that she spent there. Uh, this is based off of Hearst's own memoir, her autobiography. And, and to me, I think it's very clear watching this movie that, that Schrader sees in Patty Hearst a much more sympathetic figure than than others have painted her out to be. Um, and I think she fits very nicely into the the long like line of of Schrader figures, these sort of solitary people who get chewed up and spit out really by the world. Victims of circumstance, if you will, driven to extremes of all kinds. Um yeah, it's a very interesting construction as well. It was a lot more expressionistic than I was uh, anticipating, um, and yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's a uh, probably not one of Schrader's best, certainly, but 
I think for a biopic of Patty Hearst, it's got a lot of uh, very, very interesting moments and some fun stuff to to pick apart with you both today. And a nice counterpoint, I think, to the good vibes of comrades. Yeah, a very, a very, a very different portrayal of the the uh, the radical left, shall we say? One that is though sympathetic to Patty Hearst, maybe not super sympathetic to the, you know, the 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 left in general. I mean, it's Raider. <laughs> He's sometimes very hard to pin down. Yeah. But, but I do know that uh, his good buddy Pauline Kale was one of the champions of this film, which ultimately was a box office bomb. I think it grossed worldwide something like $1 million. So not a big hit, especially following Schrader's uh, success with uh, some of the other films of the mid-80s, particularly like Mishima, which won a ton of awards and, and uh, I think won the Palme d'Or, if I'm not mistaken. So yeah, that's Patty Hearst from 1988. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, when I was growing up, I, I have these memories of the Patty Hearst VHS that was at Video Goldmine, which is really just that poster of her. I feel like I remembered it a little bit differently in my mind. Like I was searching for the image of that VHS and I, I couldn't find it how it exists in my memory, but it was something that really scared me. And I never understood what the movie was about because I didn't read the back of it. And I, of course, now know who Patty Hearst is. I have known uh, and known about the film. But it's funny, that film has always existed as this haunted, cursed thing from my childhood of wandering the the aisles and seeing this very scary cartoon sort of depiction of, of that woman just because of the way that it's like printed. So it was funny finally having it like forced, you know, okay, you have to watch this. And it's like, okay, okay. Um... But yeah, I mean, I think I, I'm really glad what you brought up mentioning that traitor sympathies very clearly lie with Patty Hearst. And I think that that's something that is an interesting comparison point between both of these films and the filmmakers' attitudes towards the agitators specifically. Because if we want to think about this as, again, the, the prompt being about agitators and activists, the two sets of comrades in both of these films have a very different feeling, both in their depiction and what's clearly behind the scenes of the sentiment from the the filmmakers themselves. In Bill Douglas's case, they are nearly deified. They are seen as great folk heroes, as people with extremely legitimate concerns, and it's all elevated with a visual style that's reminiscent of classic painting. Every image in this film is an absolute knockout, and it feels religious in certain respects how much he thinks that these people are truly martyrs, right? And in the case of Patty Hearst, Schrader sympathies do lie with Patty. He thinks that she was duped, that she was tricked, that she was susceptible to this type of, you know, rowdy gang that I think he kind of looks at with a great deal of contempt. I think he's very interested in them, but I also think that the feeling I got watching the film was that, yeah, these guys were clowns. And I don't actually know that much about the SLA. They very well, very well may have been total clowns. And uh, based off the evidence I have, you know, that's all I can really go off of. But yeah, I mean, the you know, it's a fucking goofy 
group of people in the way that Trader presents them. He, he makes them very scary at first, and then as everything starts falling apart, you realize how ramshackle everything about them is, and their ethos is just talking points. You know, it's all very bland and open. None of their action actually directly relates to their cause, while the comrades and comrades, right, everything they do is... is, is it's just for the cause at its like simplest level. So that was something I was thinking about, was the filmmaker attitudes towards these agitators themselves being a pretty significant departure point between these two films. It reminded me of one of our very first episodes on Revolution, where we talked about, you know, how Gautam Ghosh's sort of view of Revolution was a, a positive one, and how Anthony Mann's, you know, view of the French Revolution was was negative and, and counter-revolutionary, right? And I and I felt a similar tension here. And and I gotta put my cards on the table as well, because like part of my reading of the film uh, comes from the fact that like like, they are clowns, Ryan, and, and one of the reasons I think they're clowns is because some of them were paid informants and paid chaos agents. So mm. that's, again, that's not official uh, history, but there were people at the time, particularly in left circles, the Panthers accused Donald DeFries, a.k.a. Sing of being a police informant, Bruce Franklin also accused DeFries of being a police informant. Uh, they had connections to a Berkeley professor uh, who is a known CIA agent. Again, this is all circumstantial, but people raised the question at the time, and it was just swept under the rug. And in fact, the New York Times published a story about the connections between some of the SLA members and like California, uh, sort of like Reagan, you know, led sort of intelligence ops as well as the CIA maybe being involved. So there's all this murky water even behind the SLA because, right, what they do makes no sense, right? Uh, and I feel like Schrader gets gets that, but he's not willing to take it, you know, that to, you know, <laughs> take it a step further to go like, well, yeah, this is a fucking op, dude. Like, this is the war on uh, the left, you know? This is, you know organized by, you know, Dossier 51 style shit or whatever. Um, but it's very funny because, yeah, like they're most known for uh, murdering the school superintendent in Oakland who was pro-black Panthers and pro-black, right? Like it doesn't make any sense, right? Why they would do certain things that they did. Now, again, either way, it's still like an enriching text, however you want to read it, because you either read it like it's this chaotic thing where there, it is an op, but like to what extent, well, you know, maybe we'll never know. Uh, or yeah, they're just fucking clowns and Schrader hones in uh, on the sort of like the third generation aspect, like the Fassbender movie, where it's like, it's revealed that they're all bourgeois. They're all, they all have middle-class, upper-class backgrounds, except Sing Donald DeFries, right? Everyone else is white, and everyone else, they're all Berkeley students, you know? Right. They're not like, you know, whatever. So he, he finds a lot of humor in, like, making fun of them. Uh, and that stuff's pretty funny, you know? Yeah, like, in, yeah. like, the middle of the movie. Like, once they come out as clowns, but that's the whole thing. I think, yeah, Schrader has an extreme sort of distrust of 
the radical left as he sees it, you know? <laughs> yeah, and you're right, because it is a it is an interesting thread to tug on, but even when you consider when the movie was made, it uh it's it was it was still too close to the events for I think a lot of this stuff that we're talking about oh, yeah. to really you know, uh, see the light of day. But I think to your point, you know, it's like, it's like, yeah, whether or not they were, you know, or how deeply those ties went to, you know, the FBI or the CIA or whoever, you know, uh, it's, it's well known that, you know, part of like the FBI's mission was sort of like propping up certain groups who were, inept at what their mission was to, you know, in that kind of COINTELPRO mission, just turn the public against them altogether. So, you know, my reading of what has been said about CQ and the SLA is often, um, you know, my, or I should say my, my, my take on it is that like, he's one of those guys that they propped up assuming how much damage could this guy really do? They're clowns. Look who he's got with him. Nothing that bad's going to happen. And if it does, we can pump the brakes on it pretty quick, you know? Uh, but but again, it's like a character even points out later in the film, like you're saying, like, what have you really accomplished? <laughs> Nothing, you know, I mean, aside from, yeah, like killing some. I think the guy literally says, you know, one of the when they're trying to recruit new members later, he's like, all right, what has been your revolution? Killing a bureaucrat, abducting a 19 year old girl and robbing a bank. Like that's that's what you've accomplished, you know. Like, uh, not all, n nothing really that's going to bring down the government or turn the public towards them. And in fact, you know, uh, like you said, Marsh, the killing of that superintendent had the intended effect of turning the black community against the SLA. I mean, they suddenly then like lost members they they lost the public so yeah was it an op could it have been an op regardless of whether or not it was orchestrated by them it had the attempt the the desired effect i should say of getting the public to say like where are the cops <laughs> you know <laughs> like these guys are a menace oh yeah yeah it's funny thinking about both of these groups being not necessarily the first of their type specifically, but it was interesting how Comrades, right, is depicting a group of men who were putting together one of the very first trade unions just ever for, for their area. And then I read that the SLA was deemed, you know, one of the very first far left terrorist organizations determined by the United States government. And thinking about it potentially just all being a psyop is kind of a funny way of reading it too. Thinking about it that way in terms of genesis, you know, we need a terrorist organization to be associated yeah. with the far we need left. We an American Bader Meinhof to fucking scare everyone. Absolutely, you know? yeah. yeah. The, the Red Army Brigades, yeah. dude. Yeah, if we've got these clowns it's an easy target right you know yeah. like oh we can it's the fucking it's the antifa bus or whatever yeah. you know? it's, it's the, the the plane that's flying around yeah. ready to strike if the sla didn't exist you know the american government would have had to invent them oh, but you 100%. know either or yeah totally um you know it's it, it's interesting too yeah because 
you know, the form of these movies, of course, for the most part, couldn't really be like farther apart. And I was really struck, you know, and, and like knowing that that Patty Hearst was based on, you know, her book, her perspective. Right. I was really struck at like the first 30 minutes, which are like like Andy said, very explicitly expressionistic. Right. I mean, there's sort of like chapters uh, in this movie that mark like decisive kind of like visual changes. Right. Because when it's in like comedy you know, clown mode in the middle, like there's no more shadows, right? She comes out of the closet, out of the shadow. But like the first stretch is like pulsing synthesizers, spotlights, shadows, you know, um, the cinematography by uh, Bojan Bazelli, the king of New York uh, is, is really impressive, you know, throughout. Yeah, it's an interesting mix because... Watching these films, I watched Comrades first, and that's a film, the visual style, like I said, is really reacting to fine art. And the images do look like paintings at many moments. And then Patty Hearst, to me, I did think it looked really cool, but I also, just because of how exquisite Comrades was, I couldn't help but feel that this was some dorky new Hollywood energy of just having some really garish lighting and some wide-angle lenses and some tight spaces to make everything feel really crazy. I did ultimately really like how expressionistic it was. I think it, it made it more of an engaging experience, but it did feel a lot more coked out than the very like carefully considered comrades visual well, style again like certainly the first third and you know maybe it's an unfair comparison to make because yeah i mean like when you go through the meticulous care craft and precision of every setup in douglas's comrades i mean as cool even as the 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 first third of Patty Hearst is like it ultimately makes the movie look like a goddamn TV movie. I yeah, mean, I think it doesn't. So too. It doesn't have the same kind of 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 um of like concern for each image and each setup. Again, aside from that opening of Patty yeah. Hearst, which is wild, it's crazy. But yeah, I mean, other than that. After the first third, it just becomes like a very, you know, a ragged New Hollywood Hollywood Mm -hmm. production. Exactly. And that's the thing. And maybe this is something we can pivot to talk about just the viewing experience of Comrades, because I think it's an extremely unique film and one that goes against the form and feeling of so many films of its length. Because to me, while watching it, I was so enthralled and hypnotized because we've got this film that's upwards of three hours long. I think it's over three hours long. And it almost, so much of it never feels like there's a full traditional theatrical scene. There are scenes in the film where dialogue is exchanged, but so often what we're left with are moments that are around scenes and we're following people and we see what their lives are like. And there's so much inference for us as an audience member to kind of put together how we're assessing, you know, their struggle, their situation, what the effect of like not getting very much money is doing to them. They're never sitting there and talking about it ad nauseum or at length about things that are happening. It's primarily a visual film. And the fact that that's sustained over three hours, honestly, I found to be mind boggling. 
And I was just curious how you guys felt watching this movie. I mean, I was, it was not what I was expecting. And again, there are, I, I'm conceding there are definitely traditional scenes in this film, but so much of it felt, it all, it all felt like alternative, the way it was skirting around having just a scene of people sitting and talking and getting to know them in a traditional manner. Yeah, I mean, I think, the, I think Douglas's interest in pre-cinema is, is very telling, um, you know, in the sense, like, I was thinking about Noel Birch, <laughs> you know, after watching this movie, and Noel Birch is, right, you know, he talks about the industrial mode of representation versus the primitive mode of representation, which is like pre-Hollywood films, mm. right? Um, and I almost, to a certain extent, see Douglas as, yeah, someone kind of in touch with a different way of, of making movies, right? He does never, he never conforms to the industrial mode of representation, right? He's constantly denying you um, all of that stuff. And yet, you know, I think Comrades is a very accessible film, yes. you know, all things said. Um, but I think like, you know, a lot of people compare him and Terrence Davis because, they both sort of are the same age, you know, roughly, and uh, deal in these kind of like memory poems, right? And literally and so both like, made trilogies about their childhood. About themselves, <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. <laughs> that are full of song and, you know, Nazis bombing England <laughs> overhead or whatever. Um, but right, that's just it. It's like, the, he, he, yeah, he, he films like moments and feelings. He's not yes. like d doing the story. And I was like doing more research about him and all his collaborator collaborators said like, you know, his scripts, you think they look like a real script? Obviously not. You know, they were like prose poems. He never wrote interior, exterior, day, night. He just wrote like shots, basically as prose and as you're reading the script you're like you're seeing what the camera is seeing like that's what the prose is describing so that's really how the films were made and and like you guys you know intuited like every frame was fussed over and he would get very depressed if he couldn't get a shot the way it was in his mind, you know, he was like one of those very exacting. Oh, you could uh, tell it's a guys. man just actively <laughs> seeking perfection, you know, and I would never fault any image in that entire film, but I could tell from the precision that it was something that probably would have driven him crazy, you know, because that is clearly someone who had a very distinct idea of what the whole movie would look, sound and feel like. Yeah. To me, it's like, um, just the way I would describe it is this disconnected interconnectedness of of his of his entire sort of view of a time. Uh, and and certainly we have like these people, the comrades, the characters, but it's like it's so much more than that. It's so much more. You know, like I mentioned, you know, you look at something like, uh, like Amistad, you know, where it's very clearly just about like this event and these people and like just just everything is is revolving around that central conflict that the film uh, is about, that it it presents to us. And, and here we have this miscarriage of justice similarly at a similar time, as a matter of fact, across the Atlantic, you know, of, of people striving for dignity and freedom and their rights. But it's not really about them. It's not really about this horrible thing that happened. It's about 
like you said, this sort of awakening, this, this birth. And what is that birth? Is it the, the organized labor movement? Yes. But is it also about the birth of cinema? Yes. Is it also about, you know, the birth of Australia? Yes. Right. It's about all of these things. Right. And, and that's really the, the sort of political message that we hear, the the sort of like mantra of the comrades is this 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 sense that all is connected, all are together on this planet, you know, that that their struggle is a struggle that that spreads to every corner of the globe, if only we could see it, you know? And there are times when characters, you know, they will ask those questions of each other. Like, have you ever thought about the bigger picture? That if something over here happens, it's affecting someone you don't know somewhere else, right? All of these things are connected, even if they seem very disconnected. You know, how could one person's exploitation affect someone so far removed from it, seemingly? Well, because maybe you're just not looking carefully enough. So yeah, I kept saying it as this sort of seeing it as this this disconnected interconnectedness. And I would say, you know, if we're again just sort of you know, Marsh, in your intro, you 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 used the phrase that that I was like, you know, I thought, you know, wow, yeah, this is the perfect way of describing uh, his work, you know, materialist poetry. And so the filmmaker that I just kept coming back to in my own head while watching this, to take nothing away from Douglas, but it's clear in my view that he certainly uh, was inspired by by one filmmaker's approach, and the filmmaker that I saw was Brisson. Yeah, I mean, one hundred percent. You know, there's an obsession with these sort of like inserts of hands, of objects, of people, just sort of like doing something. And again, I think that speaks to this sense of feeling like in a Brisson film that you don't ever get a complete scene that that. We're just suddenly in a place and suddenly a character enters and suddenly, you know, something happens and then we're gone. And where are we? You know, there isn't an establishing shot that's going to tell us now where the next scene is taking place. I mean, especially in the the second half of the film when they're in Australia. I mean, we just spend a little bit of time with a bunch of different people and have no sense of where they are, how they got there, what they're even doing. You know, it's just yeah. suddenly we're, we're with them to share in a moment, an experience, uh, some which come to a very clear conclusion some which do not come to a very clear conclusion. So, yeah, it's uh, it's ephemeral, but in a very like concrete way. Yeah, if I that makes any sense. It does. I really like that a lot. The specifically right that idea you're talking about how things feel interconnected and disconnected at the same time. And I think that part of my read on the film and that style does come from its influence of pre-cinema because so much of what we see in this film and the emotions we experience aren't necessarily reliant on the montage itself not to say that there isn't great editing in this film but so much of the emotional reality of every sequence is what's within the frame and we're left with these images where Primarily everything we can learn and assess and internalize is something that we can discover within the frame as opposed to 
the way we are moving between frames, just the actual act of cutting to different moments. It does feel like a lantern show where we're given this big tableau or a scene within a larger tableau, and then we are just treating that as the primary evidence of how we're supposed to be reacting at any given moment. Um, and I think that that was like an incredible feat because it, it sounds ridiculous putting it to words, but that it does feel, you know, what does the, the description at the beginning says, like the story of the, the martyrs through the lens of uh, a lantern show, the idea being that the film we're seeing is a lantern presentation that's also yeah. kind of what it circles back to in the final moments. Yeah, like the subtitle is like uh, something along the lines of a lanternist's account of right. the yeah. the martyrs. Of... And the lanternist is Bill Douglas, you know? Yes. As, as in addition to, of course, Alex North, but right. Yeah. So yeah, I was thinking, I was trying to actively read it that way too, was... I mean, how could you create a film in the 20th century that feels like a lantern show? It's about as close as it's I've ever seen. <laughs> you know? Yeah, for sure. And and I think, again, you know, I, I know this film, you know, it didn't get great reviews. It never even was released in the United States. You know, it's sort of a forgotten classic. Um, but I think, you know, a, a lot of people were like, oh, like all the, the cinema stuff is sort of superfluous or whatever, you know? And it's like, obviously, you missed... You know, obviously, a, a, you're not watching Yeah, you missed everything yeah, about this film. But, <laughs> you know, to give the, give the listeners more context, you know, like this film is ultimately about like that moment that industrialization came to the countryside. And in fact, the first thing we see in the film is all the comrades dressed as women uh, destroying a new machine that, and you have like no idea what the fuck's going on or why these guys are dressed like women. And it's never referred to again, except by one guy for one second in Australia. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, they destroy this machine, you know, like that's the opening image. And then we also get the countryside uh, sort of art with a guy with a giant boner holding a club, <laughs> which is what the which is what the title goes over. And right. that shit's like hundreds of years old. I looked it up. Um, insane. But again, this this film is about like new ways of, of seeing, right? And it's not just new ways of seeing in terms of cinema, but new ways, like Andy was saying, of of seeing the world, right? Uh, and seeing the world outside, especially of yourself and your and your community and what the goddamn vicar tells you. you right. Know? I mean the very first the very first image is actually an eclipse. But the eclipse is a man a mechanically produced mm. eclipse. Yeah. We start with the iris, right? The blank empty iris. And suddenly that iris has been closed or blocked off. The eclipse of perhaps the mechanical age looming, yeah. right? Yeah. I had I'd completely forgotten about that opening scene when they do attack the machine. Was so and I had must have missed the direct reference to it later. The idea was that was like a a flash forward of sorts because when in the timeline was that supposed to have occurred after they no had, idea yeah but okay. I assume later yeah after, I assume later yeah later after they had organized and decided to actually form their collective. Maybe around the time when there's that, like, landscape shot of a bunch of shit on fire, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe around then. I'm not sure, though. It's so elusive. It is. Well, yeah, because it was never totally clear to me as well. 
how much damage that they may have done, you know, because it's so diffuse that it almost feels like they just get sent to Australia for the mere fact of forming a trade union. And maybe that was why they were sent. Did they ever explicitly say what was the deciding factor that sent them away? Well, they actually got sent away on a technicality because, you know, for most of the early 1800s, trade unions were illegal, but it had recently been like overturned. So yeah. trade trade unions were legal. And so they couldn't get busted for trying to form a union. So they got them on a technicality of like swearing oaths, you know, which oh. was like not allowed. Like it was totally trumped up charges. You the know? banner. Yeah, and the, the banner, banner got him in trouble. Dude, the fucking banner. Remember thine end. Yeah, they went to the wrong shop to get that banner uh, put together. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking what. that too. Like, ah, shit. He should have just bought that por- that porn pick. The guy was trying to get him to get him to buy. So, you're a lover of prints. Who would have guessed? I like to extend my mind whenever I can. How rewarding that one who uses his hands might also use his mind. An antidote to the sloth of countryfying, Mr. Frampton. <laughs> the problem, Mr. Lovelace, is to match it. And having matched it, to use both hand and mind to exert it to some use for a well-balanced appetite we must satisfy all our parts hey mr lovelace i mean but that's it too man like the porn all that shit it's not just cinema it's like the way people engage with art and storytelling even you know, illiterate people, peasants, uh, not to say that all the comrades are illiterate. Some of them are are like Methodist ministers, like self-educated, you know, with books and shit. Again, that's the thing about the, the I guess, yeah, the pre-cinema stuff, the birth of cinema stuff, as I, as I like to call it, you know, that, that I guess maybe some people see as superfluous or can't understand the connection to. But again, in a, in a leftist critique of cinema, uh, especially if you consider Bill Douglas as being somebody who was with his early work, certainly like inspired also by the neorealists. You know, the, the, the big criticism there is being, you know, in part the, the realism w- was almost to highlight the artificiality of the, the cinematic experience in general that people have been lost in, have fully escaped into, and as a result, have let their world get completely taken over outside the theaters by fascists, by exploiters of all kinds, you know? I mean, there are moments where characters discuss that, discuss the difference between illusion and reality illusion in the material world so it it is like a fascination but it is also a critique of of fantasy of getting lost too much in something that is a a a creation that serves no other purpose than to mesmerize or 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 mystify the public i mean i think he sees both sides of a sort of like 
uh, an art that can agitate, an art that can push us to to change the world for the better. But he also sees the the art, the media that that degrades and destroys the opportunity for organization, for bettering ourselves and others around us. I mean, that's the difference between the lanternist getting everyone together to, to, you know, almost like third cinema style, like let's watch something and let's now talk about the world. And yeah, the, the fucking landowner who's just like, check out this fucking nudie picture I got. Huh? Wouldn't you like to just go sit and stare at this all day? Like, why are you getting all worked up about, you know, how, you know, how many shillings you're making a week? But that dude, but that's such a crucial link because I think like people forget that like, you know, a, a magic lanternist could also like bring news you know, like people didn't travel. Like there's all these great moments for George Loveless, you know, kind of like the de facto leader. You know, he's just like, you, uh, you want to buy a ticket to see the show, sir? Uh, there's none of us need to bother with that. We'll be having a battle of our own soon enough for Nate. <laughs> My dear sir, I think you underestimate the novelty of this unique exhibition. The diorama is the highest achievement of human ingenuity, delineating the most interesting part of the world in varying aspects of light and shade. How about a trip to the other side of the world tomorrow? What you offer, sir, is illusion. It's the real world I'd like to see. In our short lives, we move about so little. See so little. Yes. I'd like to travel one day. You know, even though it's very beautiful here, I know there's a whole world out there. And it's like, yeah, what do they have? Maybe a local newspaper, you know? So uh, the people that would stroll into town, whether like, you know, a dancing sailor or uh, a magic lanternist, also brings like news from the outside world, right? Mm -hmm. This like larger awareness of yeah. things. The disconnected interconnectedness of it all. Really. <laughs> well, it's also funny thinking about the SLA in Patty Hearst and the way that they're disconnected from any revolutionary reality. And I don't know if there's anything necessarily I would say that contributes to this in the film, like this argument, but I did feel while watching them that they were a very them, like Paul Schrader was treating them as like a movie idea of a revolution, that when they were spouting things and spouting what they believed in, it almost felt like they themselves created their collective and their form of revolution based off of, you know, media depictions of what revolutionaries are like, right? If they were reacting to things they saw from 1968, like we can be revolutionaries too, you know? They were, they felt like a movie idea of one. Patricia Hearst, daughter of Randolph A. Hearst, corporate enemy of the people. One of five arrests made across the country by combat units of the SLA, according to the Geneva Convention governing prisoners of war. There's a revolution going on in this country. The people have declared war on the fascist American government. The revolution is happening right now, bitch, in good old fascist America. regular Marie Antoinette. <laughs> <laughs> Marie Antoinette didn't know anything about the French Revolution until they cut off her head. <laughs> yeah. You know, one, one thing I really liked in Patty Hearst that 
I think would have been kind of neat to maybe explore a little bit more further too with the uh, the crew of the SLA. I loved whenever there was those kind of dreamy flashbacks, um, or at least through time, space, and memory of Patty Hearst and her family having dinner. And when she's there with her family in these dream sequences, she's still blindfolded. Yeah. As if, you know, even in that reality, she's blind to the world around her. And to be yeah, honest, dude, I think like it would have been... a little bit with all that stuff, yeah, you know, totally. like just these like dinner parties and she's sitting there in like a nice dress, but with a fucking black blindfold on. Right, yeah. right. And that, yeah, yeah, that stuff was really cool. And I almost think Schrader, if you wanted to just go even harder, could have done something like that with the SLA folks, you know, when they're thinking about how revolutionary they are. Those guys are blind too to the realities of what they're doing. They're only just concerned about funding their own org and robbing banks in order to actually get on to the revolution of which there's no real roadmap for. <laughs> well, right, but again, I think that's that that then is like the heart of the film. Like yeah. Schrader Schrader ha- yeah, Schrader doesn't give a shit about the SLA. They are buffoons for him. His interest here in this film is talking about Patty Hearst and this SLA moment that she goes through in her life as being just another moment that she was kidnapped. I think that's part of what he's saying. Sure. She's always been a prisoner, a prisoner of her family, her family's money, her legacy, you know, then, then later, even the media, how other people tried to take ownership of Patty Hearst, her story, who is she spoiled rich brat who, who tried to go bad or, Oh, a, a, a prisoner. And, and Schrader is using those moments of her reflecting on her childhood, her past and, and showing her in the blindfold to emphasize that point that, that, you know, Patty Hearst has never been her own person. I think even in her voiceover, she, she intimates as much that, you know, she doesn't know who she is. She doesn't know what she wants. Uh, and I think it's only in the ending that we get that kind of like, that moment where she becomes her own person, like after going through all of this, but also reflecting on, you know, her childhood and this, this moment with the SLA. But yeah, I mean, it's like, it's very clear. I mean, like you said, with this sort of like cinematic depiction of the, the, the violent revolutionaries, like when she's first abducted, it's all fragments. It's, it's, we, we never get a clear view of anyone, but they look violent. They look scary. They look menacing. And we get that whole opening sequence, which we've already kind of described where she's in a closet. They're keeping her locked in a closet. And so mostly we're just seeing her in the darkness of this closet and occasionally they will open the door and these revolutionaries will, will shout slogans at her, intimidate her, and they are just completely enshrouded in white light. We cannot see outside of the closet. We're, we're trapped in there. We don't see. But then he does also show us the room outside the closet and it's like insane production design i mean there's there's one room where there's just all these w- circular cutouts 
all, on all the walls, just hundreds of them, and white light is just pouring in. And in the shadows, we just see like weapons everywhere and military crates. And then later, we're, we're getting other glimpses of the room. And again, everyone is in almost complete darkness, but we see like chain link on the walls. I mean, this looks like a, a commando base, right? In your minds, there's, there's like commando mesh strung up everywhere. Everyone's looking like, cut and jacked i mean they're doing push-ups like they're 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 listening to the the really cool jazzy chill sla anthem which is just like a a slow jazz song and grinding on each other (laughs) it is just like it's sensuous it's menacing it's terrifying it's 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 like fucking cobra commander shit you know out of gi joe but when she finally does come out of the closet when she's taken out and and her eyes clear, take off your blindfold. All that shit's gone. We're just in a dingy ass, like Oakland apartment. Welcome. You're now Tanya, guerrilla fighter in the Sudanese Liberation Army. I mean, it looks just like a shitty fucking, you know, a house you'd live in with your college roommates. I mean, it's just, it's a joke. <laughs> I told you. All freedom fighters are beautiful. And they're a joke. They no longer look sexy and cut and jacked up. I mean, it's, aside from Bing Rames, it's like, here are the revolutionaries. Francis Fisher and fucking William Forsyth. Good, good luck. You know? (laughs) But doesn't she say, too, like, you're all so good looking? Isn't that one of the first things she says when she sees them? She's like, you're all so attractive. Further support for, you know, them all being sort of like, you know, staged actors. You know, they were got from central casting from the CIA. Well, one of them specifically says, like, in her past life, she was an actor, and that's how she helped them get all their their wigs yeah. and do, do their makeup and stuff mm. like that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's it's totally, like, playing on that, like, the, you know, here's the, the, you know, expectation versus reality, right? Expectation of the Symbionese Liberation Army is that whole opening section. Like, yeah, these guys can take down the government and and in fact their pitch to her is that their organization is worldwide they talk about all the other like the other groups you know and there's well you know there's the theory camps and and we're actually a combat group and oh our comrades in kuwait just negotiated the release of several several other comrades you know our political prisoners being held so in her mind She's also like, wow, yeah, these guys are, they're, they're spreading. Their influence is spreading. And then they even admit when she asks one of them, like, well, what about the other groups? What this a- is it? Yeah, this is, uh, this is the full army, the seven of us. Ving Rhames and a bunch of white assholes. Like, that's it. That's the full Symbionese Liberation Army. Certainly at this point. Can we get on with the business now? I still like the beauty parlor. Yes, now we get more money from a restaurant. Like some fancy French place. We're Italian. An Italian stupid, the mafia. Yolanda and I checked out this beauty parlor. We need money. The good thing is, you just wave a gun and they empty the register. You're gonna rob a beauty parlor? What's the matter with you? All thinking like white people. Don't need hundreds, need thousands. We're going to a bakery. I don't believe it. That's so brilliant. So fucking chicken shit, bourgeois. I wish I was black. 
I mean, I just wish I was fucking black. Thousands of dollars from a, from a bakery? A bank. Call it a bakery, because that's where the bread is. Check some out. Locations, escape routes, how many guards. Welcome to the SLA, sister. What a propaganda coup. Time for a photo session. And that Schrader does. He delights in that, in the the racism of the group itself, you know, that he calls out. You know, these whites who literally like are are trying to be black. Like like the scene with William Forsyth where he dons basically blackface and an Afro wig and starts trying to yeah. talk jive. Tropic Thunder moment. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they're they're a bunch of fucking racist whites who who, you know, are 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 playing revolutionary. And he right. highlights that. It was funny too watching, you know, always thinking about the double features and finding a way of seeing how does one film feel like a sequel to the other. I, after watching comrades and there is that full sequence in Australia, did either of you make the connection mentally as a gag that Patty Hearst was the, the daughter at that Australian mansion in comrades? She's the one that like falls in a puddle when another character in comrades who is forced to don blackface as he's a servant in this, this mansion in Australia, he like runs out of the home and he knocks this little girl over and she falls in a puddle in her big dress. And throughout before that, she'd been riding around on a pony and just saying awful shit. You know, this girl's like terrible, but it was funny when you think about Patty Hearst talking about herself as sheltered, rich, more a doer than a thinker. You know, I was imagining the girl in Comrades growing up to be Patty Hearst. Who knows what would have happened if she was kidnapped by um, a more a more radical and less coherent version of the Comrades, uh, our martyrs in Comrades, and instead she was abducted and became a revolutionary. <laughs> yeah, well, well the, I mean, sorry, putting. I just wanted to say, like, putting it as like a, a an unintentional sequel of sorts. I mean, it's 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 so much more like so much more of a bomber when you when you really kind of think about these two movies in communication in that sense because basically you have you could read them as two two different ways of grappling with the the like the late 60s and and you know all that revolutionary upheaval that was spreading around the globe and in the case of Douglas it's like he looks at it optimistically i shouldn't say optimistically but maybe a little bit more like uh hopefully and Schrader here is like putting the 60s to bed like he'd yeah. already done before in his career you know i mean Schrader looks back on that whole time and is like man everybody was a sap everybody was a was a was an idiot for for buying into all this kind of bullshit i mean that's what made him the 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 cynical boy we all know and love on a certain level but yeah i mean they're they're both kind of like looking back on the 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 sort of like you know the upheaval of the left throughout history and having two very very different takeaways from it 
And there's a particular, um, well, two things. One, you're also missing the direct connection, Ryan, which is that Vanessa Redgrave, who's the sheep station uh, sort of owner in Australia, is, of course, the mother of Natasha Richardson, who plays Patty Hearst. Oh, shit. So, I did not know that. Of oh, course. that's, that's right, funny. dude. <laughs> yeah. Mother-daughter Holy on this shit. week's double feature. Wow. Um, but I also wanted to say... Um, yeah, it, it, it is, uh, it's all that and more, um, because I think too, like the context of the eighties in terms of comrades is, is super essential, right? With Thatcher literally waging war against, you know, the unions of England and during the production of comrades, like the miners lost, yeah. like definitively forever to, to Thatcher mm-hmm. and the, and the government, you know, yeah. and uh, Scotland got it. Very bad. Exactly, right. And obviously, we know where Douglas's sympathies lie. And, and it's, again, you know, seeing not to not to jump all the way to the ending, but even the ending is a is an optimistic plea. You know, uh, it's, it's fraught, but it's hopeful, you know. And that's even after the failures of the 60s and then subsequent failures in the 70s and 80s, you know. Um, and yet, right, it's still, yeah, it still is this resilient thing. Whereas... Schrader, it's like, this is it. This is the end point, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, yeah, we're here. It's F. Lee Bailey in a courtroom, dude. Yeah, all, <laughs> it's always F. Lee Bailey in a courtroom, dude. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's the point of Comrades, is is not to depict them as these sort of, like, tragic figures, but as heroic figures, as, as people who ultimately won. And even if... In our view of, like, the immediate events of the film, it's hard to describe them as as having, like, won after going through all that they went through. The point being, in a true kind of, uh, uh, you know, I think, again, like, yeah, a more, a more, um, a more, yeah, hopeful kind of, like, leftist critique of things. It's like, yeah, well, this is what the history of the labor union, uh, the labor movement is. It's, it's, it's small victories, a lot of defeats, but we're grinding forward, and it's always going to be a struggle because these people, the, the landowners, the vicars, the, the, the overseers, they're not just going to give up, right? And even when you get a win, it's like, it's not a complete win. This win is for today and today alone. There's so much more to be done. You've got to just keep pushing forward. And I think like the, the, the sort of the central figure, I guess you could say like the theorist of the, the comrades in Douglas film, you know, the, 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 the educated one, the self-educated one. George. Yes. George Loveless. Like, that's the point he makes even when he's like wandering around in Australia and just talking to the mountains. It's like, oh shit, man, like this is all part of the plan. You know, this is all, if you think about it, this is all part of the grand plan here. It's like we're turning people. People are hearing our story. People are are starting to 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 open their eyes to this. But but that doesn't mean we've we've won out right it just simply means we've made progress and progress is the the essence of our struggle is is always making progress and then yeah schrader's just kind of like give it up like <laughs> you know it's like give it up you know fuck it <laughs>
Because again, like you talk about the ending, you're not wanting to jump ahead, but but again, Schrader is such a fucking sicko. Like he is just such a sicko, and I love Schrader, but you know. He, he has his own like postscript where he's sort of talking about the legacy of what happened to everybody and the very last such a troll the very last like postscript in in Patty Hearst and his you know his epitaph of the radical left is talking about the owner of Mel's sporting goods the store that they like sort of bumblingly like held up this dumb <laughs> this dumb store and how he sued Patty Hearst and the Harrises you know William Forsyth and Francis Fitcher he sued them for the trauma of what he went through because it basically made him impotent he claimed or whatever <laughs> yeah. you know? I think the specific yeah. thing that it says is that he could no longer perform his spousal duties you know I yeah. mean that that is the cynicism of yes, a coked out, you know, casualty of of the late sixties for right. sure. Because like, look at the difference between and comrades when they're putting together the they have like the initiation for the Remember Thine End collective, and they're saying things like that they believe in love and unity, self protection through equity. Strangers, you are welcome, and if you prove sincere. You'll not repent your pains and labor here. We have one common interest and one common soul, which should by virtue guide and actuate the whole. And then you have the SLA just spouting what Paul Schrader reads as just hate just mindless yelling about things without any endpoints yeah. or actual goals just saying you know dismantle it all we we hate cops we hate capitalism you know there's yeah there's revolutionary no... gobbledygook exactly absolutely and you know what it's funny too because at that initiation sequence uh where we finally go into their clubhouse which we are like denied throughout like several sequences where we see them go in there we watch the magic lanternist go in their clubhouse and we don't get to see inside that's fucking so bill douglas dude. <laughs> just like we didn't see the court when these guys get dragged into court you know we stay in the fucking lobby the whole time yeah what a weird way to shoot I a know. court scene, you it's, know? Yeah, like, it's fascinating. You just see people kind of going in and out. That's what I meant when it felt like so many of these scenes were moments around scenes. Like yeah. a lot of the big, climactic, more dramatic moments are things that are inferred or just like kind of existing on the outside of the frame. And you're focusing on something small and more human even at times, it feels like. We did get a little behind the scenes with the lanterns, though. If I remember correctly, aren't they doing like that whole thing with the the sound design for their show and you see them creating oh, the, yeah. the lightning? That was pretty nice. He's constantly highlighting like the, yeah, the work that goes into these kinds of shows. And there, in particular, there's that moment where George like talks to the guy behind the scenes of like the big magic lantern show and there's like five six people doing sound effects you know and george is like yeah i don't have time for this you know i'm starting <laughs> yeah. star i don't know if you heard i'm starting a trade union you know <laughs> um when we finally go in there though you know all that all that great great vibes are totally harshed because we later discover that one of the guys who came in for initiation was a fucking paid informant by uh the rich guy and we only learn that because he gets a little scrap of like the chicken, you know, from from the maid as his payment for informing. Oh my god, dude. 
I, God, there's so many moments like that. Like, as we've been talking about, about like Douglas is so visual, um, thinking again about like, you know, you were talking about expectations versus reality in, in Patty Hearst. There's like a great moment where they finally get, you know, an audience with, uh, what's his fucking name? Frampton or Hampton or whatever. Frampton, yeah. Frampton, like the squire of the town or whatever. They finally get their audience with him and they're like, uh, yeah, you've been like docking our pay, yeah. like down to six shillings, you know? Uh, and, and the guy's like, you know, a total coward, two-faced, you know, you know, British government guy. And he's like, oh yeah, all right, we'll give you a raise up to eight shillings. And then it just cuts to a hand pushing six shillings across a table. Mm-hmm. And you're just like, oh, shit, you know? And, of course, that's like a repeated thing we see, people's people's wages being pushed across the table and paying attention to how many coins it is and how and how little they have, yeah. you know? Hands, again. That's when I kept going to, like, Brisson, because there's so many things with just, like, hands, you know? That sort of, like, high-angle shot of hands pushing something across a table. It's, it's very Brisson, but... Yeah. Yeah, characters also, like, holding up their hands to symbolize, like, you know, hey, this is what we're getting paid, showing all the other guys, like... This is it. This is what we got. Yeah, and there's also something, too, with that detail about how the handmade quality of a lantern show as well and that type of pre-cinema being something that is this, like, artisanal craft, something that does involve a lot of, like, attention to detail and things to do with your hands. Because there's that wonderful line very early when they're reflecting on the beauty of the chairs that the carpenters are making and they're not getting paid adequate wages for. And they say, what we create with our hands, such harmony, God is truly present, you know? And you can, you feel that with them and the reverence that they treat their labor and then, of course, not getting paid for it is is so dehumanizing because of that. And I think that those moments when you sort of see the behind the scenes of the Magic Lantern show, there is something that makes this film feel handmade because it's hearkening back to pre-cinema. It is without a lot of extra fanfare. It's something that feels more tactile, and it feels like something where God is present throughout many moments. I mean, if it's like Ho Xiao Shen. It feels like he's controlling nature. Some of those shots, it's like outrageous. You know, it's the precision of a painting. How did they capture it that way? It all ties into this film being a meditation on on labor, on work of all kinds, and for him to demystify work, to remind us to reflect upon everything around us that isn't nature as part of someone's labor, you know? Like, again, the conversations about the films and, and the things that are being, you know, presented, the, the dioramas and the magic lantern shows, the zoetropes, all that kind of stuff. It's like, he's showing us the behind the scenes. He's showing us that that these things which we get immersed in and lost in and, and you know, so, so sort of like awestruck by, well, it's a bunch of people working. It's a bunch of people toiling to produce these things. Films are made by people. And as we know, especially today with like, again, think about like the huge ass blockbusters that Disney's churning out and like hearing about the fucking sweatshop conditions that the fucking VFX artists are working under. And it's just then a bunch of, you know, fanboys who are secret fascists or whatever, shoveling popcorn in their mouth and being pissed off by the quality of, of the, the total artifice that's being generated by a bunch of, let's be honest, exploited workers that no yeah. one 
is actually getting outraged by. So, I mean, I'm, I'm going off on a little bit of a tangent there, but like, yeah, this, this, this is a movie about labor and how things are produced. You know, there's a, a moment when uh, one of the mothers in the village is talking to one of her, or, uh, I think her child, um, about, you know, how there was some sort of, I, I guess I was a little vague on like the, the details of it, but there the was, girl like swindled that kid. Yeah, it was like a scam of yeah. some yeah. sort, and <laughs> and got she got something for free out of the deal or whatever. And the mom says to her, "Remember, like when you receive something for free like this, someone else somewhere is suffering as a result of it. Someone is being exploited as a result of this, right?" And again, like. Fast forward to today and it's like, boy, isn't Amazon great? Look at the cheap prices and the fast delivery. And it's like, yeah, people are, are taking pisses in their in bottles in their delivery vans and getting paid nothing and not getting bathroom breaks just so you can have these deals, these deals that you can't pass up. This is a movie about labor, about exploitation, but it isn't necessarily uh, about sort of like the the negative aspect. I think he's also more than anything just trying to get us to reflect on the the beauty, the dignity, the sacredness of work and fair work and people recognizing that work, recognizing the humans that are behind everything, whether it's the chair I'm sitting on right now or the the computer that I'm looking at you on, you know? It's like this didn't just drop out of the sky, you know? Right. Like someone... Yeah, the magic of movies all along was uh, the laborers who made, exactly. <laughs> who made them. Exactly, yeah. yeah. From, from, from a filmmaker as well, you know? I'm glad you mentioned the kids too because I also think that the children are used really well, if very sparingly in this film, to communicate a lot of things in, a, in very rich detail, specifically when they are exiled to Australia and they learn that the sentence is going to be for seven years and the mother mentions that to her daughter and she says, seven years is a long time. I'm seven aren't I? <laughs> you know? And I mean, just an agonizingly beautiful moment of trying to wrap your head around that. Like my father is leaving and he's going to be gone for my entire lifetime as it stands right now, you know? Um, and yeah, I think that kind of suffering is done very delicately without it feeling overly pathological as you see the effects on the family and especially the wives uh, when they're left behind and what their lives are like. Um, yeah, it's all just very perfectly calculated. It's really remarkable stuff. Which is funny if you compare it to the way that, again, Schrader <laughs> deals with the, the, the sentencing and the years in the courtroom for Patty Hearst. Yeah. And, you know, we see the 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 manipulations behind the scene and the debate about her and what's what's fair and what's right you know what's she gonna get and F Lee Bailey trying to 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 wiggle her out of that and also her then sort of like fucking this F Lee Bailey guy's a clown or whatever he's a jackass you know but it's funny when you think about the the now looking back on it, like, you know, just the whole aspect of that for Patty Hearst of, of going to jail. And then what, I think it was Carter, right. Who first commuted her sentence, right. Yep. Pulled her out. And then it was Clinton who gave her 
the full pardon. Uh, last day in office. That was his last day in office, the full pardon? Yeah. Wow. Wow. And, you know, we've, we've hung out with Patty Hearst, the real Patty Hearst, earlier on the podcast. That's what I was going to say. Our... And then she was fully vindicated by John Waters by casting yeah. her in Serial Mom. Yes. <laughs> yeah, dude. <laughs> yeah, she just became like a suburban mom. Yeah. 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 And I think in a weird way, this sort of this kind of yeah, I mean, like and this the point of this film for Schrader is is like jumping on the Patty Hearst cause celeb bandwagon of like, you know, free Patty Hearst, vindicate Patty Hearst, you know? She did nothing wrong, really, you know. Which is also a very man, again, compared to comrades, right? It's like you just think about all that. These idiots, these people, these, these, yeah, as Marsh pointed out, these fucking suburbanites who suddenly decided to play revolutionary. And the one among them who got the biggest break and the biggest deal, of course, being the legacy of one of the wealthiest families in America, you know? I mean, again, I'm not saying that Patty Hearst wasn't, you know, abused and manipulated into doing what she did, but it's like, yeah, she had the most champions in her corner. That's for damn sure. <laughs> yeah, Kerr, Dave Kerr, uh, you know, was very mixed to negative on the film, um, and and said that like Schrader can't help but turn her into uh, Saint Patty, yeah. another of Schrader's martyrs. You yeah. know, and it's like, I guess my problem then is like, really, you know, it's interesting, Andy. We've done a Schrader script that he didn't direct, and now we've done a Schrader film he directed and didn't write. And obviously his hands is, his hands are all over it, but uh, it's a script by Nicholas Kazan, you know? And I think that's like ultimately my problem with the film is that she is too much of a blank slate that like, it, it doesn't work for me in making her a martyr because she's just like in a zombified trance for like one hour of the movie you don't really learn a lot about her or her thoughts. I mean, we get her voiceover, but like, it's not that illuminating. No, I don't know. I just didn't feel like I just walked out of it being like, I don't know anything about her, you know, like at all, <laughs> at all or whatever. Yeah. But I get it like symbolically from Schrader's perspective. But again, it's so much clearer in, in something like comrades, like what it's all about. And when Patty Hearst ended, I was like, what is, what is this? Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. Which again, I think it's like, it's like a weird, it's like a weird Schrader sort of, yeah. Again, this sort of like, thumbing his nose at at all of that at all like you know of the the lumping all i think of like the the radical leftist sentiments of the era into patty hearst as the ultimate symbol of it all being like well yeah they were either like clowns buffoons he didn't go that far but fbi informants or just these these totally like vacuous rich kids who could care either way, but just sort of went along with it. I mean, and like in the script, I can see that maybe the point was we want to show that yes, she was a prisoner and she was this sort of unformed human being that got pounced on at the worst possible moment in her formation as an adult. But yeah, none of it is, 
like anchored in anything other than her just talking about suppressing ideas, suppressing emotions, suppressing her thoughts. I mean, like her mantra at a certain point in her voiceover is like, what good are your feelings? Feelings aren't going to help you out at all in this. I don't have to have any. It doesn't matter. My feelings don't mean anything, you know? It is just the most like bleak depiction of all that. I mean, like I would have given her a little bit more credit if her political awakening did have some sympathies, you know, but it doesn't have any explored. I mean, it's just kind of like, yeah, I had to survive, you know, that's really it, you know, but you took nothing away from it other than that. Yeah. I feel like he kind of did a bad job with that transition of her deciding to stay with them instead of going free. I mean, he makes it clear that at that moment in time, her state of mind was still associating freedom with death that she didn't really buy what that they were saying like oh you can be free because it kept flashing back to that image of her being thrown in a grave and being buried and i think that schrader was potentially trying to suggest that she thought that freedom possibly meant just death freedom from life you know that they were going to turn their back on her and really she had no choice but to be honest yeah i i i also found her to be a bit of a blank slate i never really got a strong sense of why she decided to stick around and how that made her feel as the film kept going on you know she definitely has a smirk at the end when she's finally arrested and they say what's your occupation and she says urban gorilla you know, and she's she's kind of smiling and I think sees something exciting about it. But otherwise, I found it very difficult to read why she wanted to stick around. I don't think that that's ever made perfectly clear or even then ambiguous in a very interesting way. Yeah, that's it. Because, like, I think they just sort of take it for granted that it's like, well... Uh, she was either brainwashed or she she bought their line, you know? And it's like, well, that's easily explained. She grew up in the Hearst family, so she knows, you know, that these people are sick fucks or whatever, yeah. you know? But, <laughs> yeah, but we don't, again, it, it sort of remains at a distance, you know? And I think that's also, you know, part of it is like, yeah, a, a a, a matter of perspective because there's so much we don't see like the, you know, the, the SLA asked the Hearst family to like give food to everyone in California or whatever. And they did this whole thing like food for the people. Uh, but it was so poorly mismanaged that it like devolved into food riots. But like, that is just like a, a bit on the radio. I mean, even like yeah. the, the, the untimely demise of, of sing, sing Q and the gang is, is through television images because Patty wasn't with them. Right. Um, and you do get a sense, I guess that's the one moment where she realizes like, Oh, they think I'm in there. The cops, the FBI, whoever they think I'm in there. And they were just going to blow me up, yeah. you know? Yeah, and I yeah. think she, they burned she the fucking like, thing to the ground. Yeah. I mean, that's a hell of a moment of, of realization for her in terms of like actually being radicalized. You yeah. Know? But it's like, again, right? It's like, I could see you looking at the same material if you, if you had a little bit, a little bit more sympathy for the politics behind it, you'd have a very different depiction of these people. <laughs> yeah. 
you know, and that's the thing. That's why it's such a it's a politically dubious film because you know there are other critiques of that time and of like the the wild and woolly late sixties, early seventies, where it's like, yeah, I mean, these people were inept and they were clowns and they were in over their head, but their heart was in the right place. Schrader never, never ever goes there at all. Like not for a second. I mean, I think the only character oddly, right? The the character who he seems to have the most kind of like interest in in that regard of kind of being like, well, was probably actually a decent person if you really just sort of look at them was was Wendy, the yeah. the Asian woman that they hook up with in Pennsylvania who they kind of roped into coming back and trying to to kickstart the SLA again. And Wendy is presented as a very like practical, logical, rational thinking person in the group and is constantly also pointing out the racism of all these white scumbags being an Asian woman as well. And being like, hey, trying to sort of get into Patty's head of being like, don't buy into all this bullshit, you know? I did, and then I gave up, and I went and lived by myself in the woods or whatever, and I don't know why I'm helping these people out, but I, I guess I feel bad for them. But, but like, that's the only character who seems to kind of get any of that nuance. I mean, like, just think about the casting of Francis Fisher and William Forsyth as really, like, the people you spend the most time with in the film as figures of the SLA. I mean, like, let's be honest. If you want someone to look like a total piece of shit, uh, a, a gross slob in your movie, you cast William Forsyth, right? If you want an unsympathetic character, you get William Forsyth in there. Like, can you think of a movie where you've looked at him and been like, oh yeah, he's a good guy. You know, <laughs> like he's usually like the gross asshole of whatever group you've got. And so for Schrader, to root our understanding of the SLA more in him, I think, even than in Ving Rhames, yeah. because Ving Rhames is gone halfway through the film as Sinkyu. You know, when that when that thing burns down, now she's stuck with, you know, the Lockhorns, Francis Fisher and William Forsythe just seem to be arguing the whole time or trying to get her to have sex with them, you know? Yeah, the Harrises in real life who were from Indiana and were also suspected uh, informants. Sure. And again, right? I mean, like, <laughs> maybe it wasn't, there wasn't enough of that out at the time he made this, but that would have made this film so yeah. much more. I mean, like, I can see the 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 layers that he's trying to present to our reading of these events but it's it's missing one very crucial layer of all of this all of this this sort of like the cannibalization of the movement by the government itself not just the adversarial relationship between the government and the SLA but also the implication that well it's just the, the Spider-Man pointing at each other or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. Know? I mean, I think that's also like in the context of Ryan's topic, it's like very fascinating to me because then it's like, yeah, 
what is the agitation? Who is doing it and why? And it's probably, yeah, a confluence of many different things. I mean, just alone what we know about the 60s is like science fiction, you know, in terms in terms of all that stuff. But it's also missing, you know, there was another chapter, of course, to the SLA saga. A bunch of them went to jail in the early 2000s for some of the some of the murders that happened and a lot of them were like just living completely normal lives like one of the women worked for the Disney Channel <laughs> in the 1990s no which is yeah way. which is an insane way <laughs> insane Holy thing shit. but yeah like most of them were just like living very like you know, bourgeois uh, sort of normal lives and then they get like oh yeah you murdered that person in by the way 1974 <laughs> uh, we're back in 1974 we can't get away and there's a great part where uh, you know, Tanya walks around the corner and we see on the marquee down the street the conversation, oh, Francis yeah. Ford Coppola. That's how you know it's 1974. Mm-hmm. What a time to be alive. <laughs> yeah, I think what really would have saved this movie is if they went the 1517 route because, you know, Patty was in Serial Mom just a couple years after this, right? Wasn't that yeah, like she 89, 90? Yeah, she should have played herself. And the terrorists should have played themselves, the ones they who were, were still dead. alive. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a couple were still hiding, alive. Yeah. You know, but... Wow. You know, Bill Douglas wanted to film the England stuff in Academy Ratio black and white and Australia in color cinemascope, but there was no money to do either of those things. God, I'm so glad he didn't. (laughs) Oh, man, I love the way the movie looks. I wouldn't want to change it at all. Oh, that's good to hear that the the money got in the way there. They had to stick with their original handcrafted intention. Oh, my God. All I could think about was how beautiful the colors were, especially for the English sequence. Well, I was like, look know, at he, this thing. He struggled with beauty, you know? Look, when you watch the trilogy, you will you will understand a whole other dimension of Bill Douglas that is, like, literally the bleakest shit you will ever, <laughs> ever I'm see. I'm sure, you know? I'm sure. Um, but that's also, like, you know, there's... It's it's such a rich like Comrades is such a rich movie uh, for all the reasons we've been talking about like historically cinematically but also like as I'm learning like autobiographically even if it isn't intentional like he's a guy who literally came from nothing and transformed himself into a filmmaker and a professor um, from the circumstances of which he came. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, and you see that journey, like even George, right? He jokes like, I, I'd love to travel places or whatever. And that's like ironic foreshadowing. Cause it's like, buddy, you're going to travel. You're about you to go on a wild adventure. Yeah, you're, uh, you're, you're about to be shackled and sent to Australia. But I mean like, yeah, the Australia, you know, section of the film, um, I'm just so bowled over by it, you know, and for, for so many reasons and like what it weaves uh, into it. Cause like you said, it's also about the birth of Australia and fucking the one guy, old Stanfield starts trying to teach the aboriginals like insurrection and self-reliance or whatever, <laughs> yeah. you know, like that James Fox calls him in like, uh, I appreciate what you're doing. I'm a liberal man myself, but you can't be telling me, telling <laughs> these guys to overthrow us. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, <laughs> 
Man, when you first arrive in Australia and they're like, he's looking at his assignment and he's trying to figure out where to go. And he's like, sir, can you give me an idea of what direction I should head? And he's like, Loveless, oh, yeah. the administrator. Yeah, he's like, yeah, you'll go that way. You know, it's about 300 miles or so. A guy like you should be able to get there in nine days. I'm like, nine days? 300 divided by nine? I'm just the amount of miles that he would have had to walk in just a direction. Totally unclear, just into the wasteland of Australia, yeah, you know. To then be put on a chain gang or right. whatever, like where yeah. you are, with a Holy with a hunk shit. of with like a hunk of beef jerky in your pack and like a one canteen of water is yeah. what they they give them for rations. But yeah, I mean, I think that's again why I was like just so so uh, so blown away by this movie because you do get this this really interesting rumination on like Australia's formation like its development as a place and like he's showing us the harshness of the landscape but those details the attention to historical details that most people probably haven't gotten in other films i mean just that the image of what it was like to to you know sail into botany bay and then it's like okay well what happens when you get to australia and the reality of just them more or less like you've described just telling guys like well just go over there you know they weren't being transported in like you know like prison carts or whatever it's like nah there's just there's so many images of just these like like Poor souls just wandering empty landscapes Dude, of Australia. Punishment, it's Punishment Park. You right, know? I mean, like, yeah. yeah, I mean, just <laughs> just walking around with nothing, you know? And it's like, again, you think about like hard time and stuff like that. And it's just like, they're just like having picnics on the side of a, like a river or whatever. I mean, and like, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying it's nice. But again, like Loveless is also like using this as an opportunity to to connect with nature, to think, to formulate more of his thoughts, you know? I don't want to say like it was a good thing for any of no, them. But he's taking it as a as a learning opportunity and as a spiritual opportunity, you know. Yeah, and also like not letting them be beaten by it, you know. And I think that's like the key element here. And and if there is some sort of idea about like the well, look at what Australia became. Yes, a colony of England, but what what like it's guys like this who planted the seeds for for what life would eventually become here you know and and again i i don't know enough about australian history to really like go in on it but but like yeah there's there's just so much in this film to to deal with that it's like i mean it's it's just mind-blowing to me that this was as you've both sort of described like a, a handmade film when it's one of the, I mean, like it, it, it was almost taking me to, to like, um, peck on the cheek in terms of being like, wow, look how much you can pack into a film. If you're willing to go there, you know, you don't have to just, you know, remain like imprisoned by 
one central controlling conflict or idea, but you right. can take your audience to so many different places. You can have you can have ten films in one if you dare to try. Right. You know? It's it's again, it's it's like, you know, we talked about belly as this sort of like, well, you look at belly and it it presented a, a, a future for cinema that that never materialized. It's like, well yeah throw comrades into that category as well. This showed us a, a, a potential way forward for movies that, that, that never happened, partly because nobody ever saw it, unfortunately. But yeah, yeah I mean, but no, it was exhilarating. It's one of those things where you see a film uh, from a specific filmmaker you weren't familiar with for the first time. And it almost feels like you're watching a movie for the first time because you think like, okay, this is possible. I had no idea. Thank you very much. You know? And I kept thinking too, just because of how beautiful the movie was, you mentioning peck on the cheek. I was thinking, man, like Ridley Scott wishes he could make a movie that looks this good. Even the one bone we throw Ridley saying his movies do look very nice. Like white squall looks nice. Uh, he wishes that his movies could look like this. And also speaking of beauty, Andy, did you think that the Italian uh, photographer that had the like steam powered camera looked exactly like Marsh? <laughs> I thought he looked like Stanley Kubrick. So I guess <laughs> guilty as charged. I've been known to be, to be accused of having a, uh, sunken eyes and a beard you know <laughs> you know honestly marsh didn't pop into my head interesting but, but uh i he was definitely i think my favorite of the oh. various like you know uh the, the pioneering cinematic gene like mad yeah. geniuses like <laughs> that celebrated steam dude. heliotype you know? <laughs> yeah dude like yeah that shit was nuts that, that machine, I mean, holy fucking shit, dude. Yeah, very good, very good. Standing. Very standing. Good, good, good. Oh, ha, ha, ha. Molto, molto bene. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh. oh, this is so good. Don't move. Su bambino! Madonna, the deal! Hey! Get, 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 get away! You get the. Go away! Go away! Savia, move! 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 No, 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 no! Move! Move! No, 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 no! Stay still! No! You get away! Get. Oh, mamma mia! You stay! But you move! Yeah, that was wild. I loved him. And ultimately, great. yeah, we get brought back, you know, to England with a magic lantern show that transitions into, you know, this big laborers rally as the martyrs come home, uh, celebrated by the new burgeoning uh, labor movement. And we get a great bit, you know, when Mr. Pitt, who's been like an advocate for uh, for the for the comrades, uh, you know, he's like, but really, I want to thank, you know, and it's this, of course, very like foundational and timeless, you know, sort of like all the unions start 
yelling out. You know, it's like... See who have really lent their weight to these joint efforts. The silk weavers, shipwrights, joiners, Dreamers. cordwainers, Marius. Blacksmiths. journeymen tailors, Whitesmiths. hatters, brushmakers, Corkers. Blacksmiths. Yes, yes, yes. Paper stainers, coach painters, gardeners, and gardeners. To all of you, our heartfelt thanks. Oh, everyone's just screaming and cheering their own their own craft, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. Something that the it. SLA would just never inspire <laughs> in fucking anybody. Oh, God, the yeah. workers of the world would not unite behind against those clowns. Yeah, because again, right? It's like Bill Douglas has made a movie that so that is celebrating work, that is celebrating labor, and and arguing for. Uh, us to have a a deeper connection and understanding to what work is and how how it's such a worthwhile thing for us to fight for to fight for better work better conditions for everyone and and respect for what they do and yeah Schrader like Schrader has contempt for all of that I mean like again it's like you think about too the depictions of violence uh, between these two films, you know, and in Comrades, there are moments of violence, of of extreme violence. You could argue, you know, people get killed in this movie, but for him, the the moments of violence in Comrades are always presented to us as, you know, um, reactions, reactions to events, to how people are treated, that people get pushed so hard and so far that they they feel they have no other recourse but to to lash out you know like it it, douglas is saying like hey you know these moments of turmoil of violent upheaval aren't just because people are they have nothing better to do with their time you know (laughs) it's like it's like in australia there's there's the brutal the, the guy that's running the chain gang and yeah. he's, he's bestiality brutal. alert. Yeah. It's also being very bad to his dog, you know, which is really, I think his final crime, you know, in yeah. the eyes of, of everyone involved. That but is like, the breaking point. They, they, they rip the guy to fucking pieces. You know, they, they attack his shack and recalling the attack on the, the, the mill from, from the opening of the film. Like the, you, the shots are basically repeated, but now we're in Australia. And again, it's like you push people up against the wall, give them no other choice. And this is, this is a, this is a, the, the pressure suddenly releasing, but in, you know, Patty Hearst, like the violence of that era, again, for, for Schrader is just so much more nihilistic. It's just so much more like, I don't know. I don't know what everyone was doing back then. I don't know what everybody was smoking back then. Everybody's losing their minds, you know, like that's the takeaway from it all. Like there isn't for all their like revolutionary sloganeering and gobbledygook that they're like spitting out. Like there's also like no time that's really taken to set up this era, set up this moment. Neither that Schrader taking it for granted. Like, well, we all remember, we all remember the 60s, right? Everybody kind of lost their minds for a little bit. But but there's no formation for why something like this or other groups that were more serious that actually, you know, like compared to like the Black Panthers, like none of that 
is 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 placed there. So the takeaway is that well, they were all like this, I guess. You know. Yeah, we send we spend so much time in comrades, uh, just like watching them live their lives, watching them get humiliated, and like slightly pushing back, you know, like, but we still see the build, right? We see the actions and reactions uh, that define everything. And, and in Patty Hearst, we, we open the film uh, at 10, you know, just like kill all the pigs. Mm-hmm. It's about it, you know. Yeah. Like, yeah, okay, a- you described you described it as like a kind of like a coked out film, and like, man, remember the credit sequence? Like, you want to talk about coked out? The credit sequence of Patty Hearst is like nuts, dude. It's it's like eighties MTV shit. Suddenly, remember they had like her, the like remix of her like phone call to her parents, or yeah. like the voice tapes and everything, like. <laughs> I mean, Don't and just like shit. the the brash, like black and white titles. I mean, man, it was just an assault. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> su- suffice suffice to say that you know, I was very agitated by the SLA, but the the comrades uh, have have me ready to agitate. I'm ready to be initiated into the Remember Thine End collective. You know, yes, two two different kinds of martyrs on this week's yes, episode, undoubtedly. So these were our uh, picks, Ryan. When you think of of political agitators who could potentially be viewed as terrorists by the authorities, what comes to mind for you? Well, the first one that comes to mind would far from terrorists would not be classified as such. But when I think about agitators, uh, I think of Spike Lee's Get On The Bus, which normally is not my sort of thing because anytime I see a movie that is based off of a play, I just get upset and I think I hate plays, <laughs> which is harsh. But I just feel that sometimes when watching a movie and this movie doesn't feel like that, even though it all takes place on a bus. It's a, bunch, it's a group of men going to the, uh, the Million Man March on Washington and it's one of, you know, it's a very incendiary, uh, incendiary Spike Lee film as, you know, all the great ones are. But I also think that there's, there's just something about it. I don't know if it's because he was like working with this play. It feels a little different. It feels singular amongst uh, some of the films in his career. And it's I think it's that, also because of that cast. I mean, that is a yeah. stacked fucking cast yeah it's unbelievable you've got ossie davis in it you've got bernie mack in it wendell pierce isaiah washington it just it is an it's an incredible group of folks and uh, uh richard belzer as the bus driver from right. homicide who i've been spending <laughs> yeah. a lot of time with lately you know true, munch true. driving the bus dude <laughs> But then, yeah, if I had to go with one that fits maybe a little bit more into, you know, what the government might deem as terrorist, you, you can't go wrong with the classic Grin Without a Cat, this big survey of the activists in 1968, the great Chris Marker film. Uh, that one's uh, an all-timer for sure. You know, SLA, not to not to give my own recommendations when it's not my topic, but uh, during Patty Hearst, you know, the SLA stuff just, just had me thinking – I wish I was watching United Red Army right now, which is, uh, you know, a Japanese film about the United Red Army and how they, you know, devolved and sort of like, you know, destroyed each other from within or whatever. That's a fantastic with like actual lots of political discussion, you know, that makes Mm. sense, even if it is deranged. (laughs) Um, Yeah, rips, you know, Um, but that's like a very extreme kind of uh, 
take on all this stuff and it's awesome well yeah well well thank you both thank you both hopefully uh we won't agitate you too much next week marsh with whatever your topic is so why don't you lay it on us what are the rules yeah well you know i was uh thinking about the topic and you know my birthday's coming up uh, and i was thinking oh maybe it'll align with the the episode but no the episode is coming out much earlier than my birthday so i scrapped that idea but i kept going with thinking about like astrology right uh it's gemini season and i want to take that as a, a sign to uh explore that as our topic bring me your twins your doppelgangers your body swaps it's gemini time double your pleasure double your fun dude (laughs) as always you can follow us on twitter at gauntlet movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com thanks everyone come right I believe that God works by means and men. Under such an impression, I call upon every working man in England to shake off that supineness and indifference to their interests, which leave them in the situation of slaves. Is not the working man as much right to preserve and protect his labor as the rich man has his capital. Such a measure, I'm well aware, would be dreaded, reviled, reprobated by the moneyed part of the nation. They would devise all those schemes, stratagems, and policy that the art and cunning of man can invent to thwart and retard it. But let the working classes of Britain Seeing the necessity of acting upon such a principle, remembering that union is power, listen to nothing that might be presented before them to draw their attention from the subject. Alike despising and conquering party disputes, personal bickerings, and they will accomplish their own salvation, and that of the world. Let every working man come forward from north to south, from east to west. Unite firmly but peaceably together as the heart of one man. And then no longer would the interests of the millions be sacrificed for the gain of a few. Blessings resulting from such a change would be felt by us and our posterity even to generations yet unborn. <laughs>